Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. And this summer we've been hearing from the words of Christ to the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, and we've been studying that on Wednesday night and then following those messages up on Sunday morning with by highlighting maybe a thought or a verse or a concept that uh, paralleled what we learned on that previous Wednesday night. And so I was thinking about maybe preaching one more message that might serve kind of as a capstone to this, um, this summer series. And I was just thinking about what words of Christ does the church in our day need to hear the most? And I thought of Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. And we've gotten used to seeing red this summer because all of Revelation 2 and 3 is in red. And if you have a red letter edition Bible, we, we know that's the way they, uh, the translators signify these are the words of Christ. And so we have some more red to look at here in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. And you can just read along with me in your own Bibles, and he was saying to them all, this is Jesus, of course, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Father, thank you again for this privilege, this opportunity we have to study your word together. We pray that your spirit would be uh, active amongst us, illuminating us, helping us understand these words of Christ and exactly what they mean and how they apply to our lives, Father, that we would not just be merely hearers of your word today, but doers who bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as I was reading through my emails this week and scrolling through the news feeds that I look at to keep up with, keep up with current events, uh, two things caught my attention, both of which are indicative or representative of the problem in the church today. I received an email advertisement about a new book called The Great De-Churching, coining a new phrase there, The Great De-Churching, and the subtitle, Who's Leaving, Why Are They Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? This book is written by two pastors who've been trying to figure out why so many people have left the church in the past 30 years. And their hypothesis is this, that we are currently in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of the United States. And they point out how studies show that roughly 40 million adult Americans who used to go to church monthly now no longer go at all. One in six American adults have just vanished from houses of worship across the country. And so in an effort to equip Christians to engage and minister to the de-churched people in our lives, they, these authors present six profiles of different types of de-churched people. Now granted, 
there are some people who have been hurt by the church and have been mishandled by their pastors and are mistreated by their fellow believers. I was talking to someone recently and they mentioned a term I had not heard before, church hurt, uh, that we all have church hurt. Uh, any, anybody who's gone to church for any length of time has been hurt by someone in the church. And that's what happens when you hang around with a bunch of sinners all the time. You hurt one another. And so there's definitely church hurt in a lot of people's minds and hearts and lives. But that being said, I hope one of the profiles of de-church people that they include, and I've not read the book, not planning to read the book, but I, I hope that one of the profiles of de-church people they include makes some reference to wheat and tares and sheep and goats and the different types of soils that Jesus talked about. And I trust at some point they mention 1 John 2.19, which says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Now, I don't want to minimize the reasons why people stop going to church or act like there isn't uh, or aren't ways that we can improve how we minister to people, but let's not overcomplicate this thing. The defining problem driving people away from the church is not, quote, how, America, how, how American life works in the 21st century, which makes it harder to attend church than to skip church. Now, that's one of the conclusions is that because of just the way our society works these days, it's easier to skip church than to attend church. I would submit to you that the reason many people have left the church is they were never truly Christians to begin with. And the most important thing that we can do to get them to come back to church is to share the gospel with them. Well, the other thing I came across was a, a, a news story about a U.S. representative from South Carolina. Some of you may have seen this, uh, read this, um, who during her speech at an annual prayer breakfast shared that when she woke up that morning, her fiancé tried to keep her in bed a bit longer, but she insisted that she needed to get to the breakfast on time and laughed it off saying a little TMI and then added, he can wait, I'll see him later tonight. Well, as you can imagine, conservative Christians took issue with her for using her platform at a Christian prayer breakfast to make light of premarital sex, something God clearly forbids. One pastor commented how thoughtful of her to delay fornication so she could show up on time for the prayer breakfast. Then he added, reminds me of a line from that old song, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. I found it interesting that in response to the criticism she received, she said, well, I'm so thankful that my pastor took that joke in stride, and uh, we'll have a little more to talk about this Sunday at church. And then she said, I don't go to church because I'm a saint, I go to church because I'm a sinner, which I think we would all agree. Nobody came here because I'm a saint, right? We're all sinners, and we need church. We need the body life uh, of the church. But we know that Jesus responded to the woman caught in adultery with grace, with forgiveness, 
We know he confronted self-righteous, judgment, judgmental, holier-than-thou people who look down their noses at everyone else's sinful specks when they got big old logs in their own eye. But Jesus also made it very clear what it really means to be a Christian, which is what I want to talk about this morning. Being a Christian is not believing all the right things. It's not doing all the right things. It's not going to church every Sunday. It's not reading your Bible. It's not praying. It's not being a saint or not, never sinning. Being a Christian is a total radical commitment of your entire life to the person of Jesus Christ. That's not my opinion. That's, those are not my words. Those are the words of Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. And of all the statements that Jesus made during his ministry years, none is repeated more than that phrase, follow me. It appears in the Gospels close to 20 times. The first occurrence is in Matthew 4.19 when Jesus said to Peter and his brother Andrew, follow me. And the last record of this key phrase is found in John 21 when after indicating to Peter how he would die, two times Jesus said to him, follow me. It's as if the Spirit of God purposely ended the account of Christ's life and ministry in the Gospels with this clarion call echoing throughout history for all to hear, follow me. And the fact that these two words were uttered from the lips of Jesus himself and that they dominate his message to mankind indicates that they must be crucial to understanding what it really means to be a Christian. In other words, for someone to be a Christian, they must clearly grasp what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. And so let's consider together some of these verses in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus himself explained and illustrated what he meant when he said, follow me. I find it interesting that while Matthew and Mark and, and John, they chose to emphasize the many gracious invitations of Christ, Luke, on the other hand, chose to highlight all the, the radical, as someone, someone called it, de-invitations of Christ. The, the calls that Christ repeatedly made that if anyone wanted to follow him, they had to be willing to deny themselves, hate their family, lay aside their personal comforts, give up all their earthly possessions, take up their cross, and never look back. And here in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, I think we have what may be Christ's clearest and most compelling call. Now, just to set the background here, Jesus had been spending time training and equipping and preparing his disciples to carry on his ministry after he left and went back to heaven. These guys had left everything to follow Christ. And so after following them for, following Christ for about two and a half years now, they, they had become convinced that he was the promised Messiah. Look at verse 20. After asking the disciples who people say, were saying that he was, and they said, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, others said, you're one of the prophets of old who, who's come back to life. And he said to them, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In other words, you're the Messiah that, that you promised, that was promised to be sent by God in the Old Testament. 
And notice next, he warned them not to reveal this to anyone and then told them for the very first time of his impending death. Verse 21, he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then in verse 23... He made it clear that confessing him as Lord meant committing their entire lives to him, even if it meant they had to die too. It's as if he said, this is it, guys. It's time to level with you. I'm headed to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And you can come with me on three conditions. And in verse 23, Jesus concisely explained what a person must do to become a Christian. And then in verses 24 to 26, he convincingly explained why a person must become a Christian. And so we've got three conditions for becoming a Christian, three considerations for becoming a Christian. And before we look at those conditions and considerations, I think it's critical to note here that Jesus wasn't just addressing his disciples at this point. According to Mark 8.34, Jesus was also addressing the multitudes. And so the all here, when he says, and he was saying to them all, in verse 23, included both the disciples who had already been following Christ as well as the unbelieving crowds who constantly were surrounding him. And so Jesus wasn't just appealing to those who had already left everything to follow him, but anyone who wished to come after him, anyone who wanted to become one of his followers. All that to say, I don't think we should view this passage as a call to Christians to become more dedicated Christians. Jesus wasn't calling his disciples to a higher level of commitment. He was simply reminding them of the cost involved in being one of his disciples, while at the same time inviting the multitudes to consider becoming one of his disciples. There's a lot of confusion in the church today regarding this subject of, of disciples or discipleship. Some believe and, and teach that there's a, a call to discipleship that is different from the call to salvation. And they view the the Christian life in two stages. You you first become a Christian, and then sometime later you become a disciple. And the result is a a two-class system of Christianity made up of ordinary Christians and the really committed Christians. You've got JV Christians, you've got varsity Christians. But we need to understand that disciple and Christian are synonymous terms in the New Testament. Disciple is the basic term for a follower of Jesus in the gospel and the book of Acts. Matthew 28, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations. What was he saying? Go and lead other people to me. Go and lead other people to Christ. Make other Christians. And before Christians were ever called Christians in Antioch, Acts eleven twenty-six, 26, they were, they were simply called Disciples. And so that's why I think it's best to interpret Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 9, not as an optional call to some higher level of sanctification, but as an initial call to salvation. 
Jesus was laying out the requirements or the conditions for being a Christian. The, the word he used there is the word if. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to be a Christian, these are the three things you must be willing to do. The first condition is denial. Is denial. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Let me tell you what deny yourself doesn't mean, okay? It doesn't mean giving up some comfort, sacrificing some pleasure, adopting some wimpy, non-assertive attitude, maintaining some kind of aesthetic, monk-like lifestyle. To deny literally means here to disown. When you disown someone, you completely separate yourself from them. You, you totally abandon them. You act like they don't exist. You act like you don't know them. So to deny or disown yourself is to pretend or act like you don't exist. Which we usually act like we are the most important thing in the universe. But Jesus is saying, if we want to follow him, he calls us to forget about ourself, our wants, our desires, our cravings. And how ironic, the world is telling us the exact opposite of what Christ did. The world says, have it your way. Obey your thirst. Be good to yourself. Pamper yourself. Indulge yourself. Love yourself. The whole focus is on self, but Jesus said, forget yourself. In fact, he went so far as to tell us to hate ourselves. Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus went for the jugular there at the end of that verse, Luke 14, 26. He knew what the real issue was. We as sinful people are most devoted to ourselves. We treat ourselves like we are the most important person in the world. And that's why we're so easily drawn into the world's appeals to indulge ourselves and to pamper ourselves and assert ourselves, reward ourselves. But Jesus said we need to hate ourselves. In other words, we need to be more devoted to Christ than we are ourselves. And so the question is very simple. Do you love Jesus more than you love yourself? When you have a choice to make between doing what you want to do and doing what Christ wants you to do, what do you choose? Are you living to please yourself or are you living to please Christ? And so the first condition for becoming a Christian is denial. Well, it gets better or worse, depending on how you're viewing this, right? The second condition is death. Notice he says, if anyone comes or anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Now, let me tell you what take up your cross doesn't mean, okay? 
It doesn't mean bearing some burden or some trial or some difficulty. We talk about we, have, we all have our cross to bear. We use that expression, right? Whether it's an illness or a difficult spouse, an unreasonable, unreasonable boss, a meddling mother-in-law, your algebra class, whatever it is, right? When we spiritualize this phrase, take up your cross, we take away the radical impact of what Jesus was saying here. We need to take this literally and understand it exactly how the disciples and the crowds must have understood it. When they heard Jesus say, take up his cross, there was only one thing that came into their minds. What was it? Crucifixion. The Romans invented crucifixion to torture and kill the worst criminals. And those condemned to be crucified were required to carry the crossbeam of their cross to the place of execution. That's what it meant to take up your cross back in those days. And so Jesus was requiring that his followers be ready and willing to die for him. And with the exception of John, who died on the island of Patmos, right, writing the book of Revelation, uh, all of Christ's disciples died as a martyr. And we know that today, even, there are many Christians in foreign countries who are being martyred for Christ. Lord willing, few, if any of us, will ever have to die, literally die, because we're Christians, but I think we must be willing to endure any persecution, any kind of rejection, shame, suffering for the sake of Christ. And we must be prepared to endure these things on a daily basis. He says we must, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. We must be willing to put to death our selfish desires every day. That's probably a pertinent application for us here in America, to put to death our selfish desires every day. One of Christ's most faithful followers was obviously the Apostle Paul. Uh, he got this, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. He simply said, I die daily. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Paul understood that being a Christian was conditioned on dying to self and living for Christ. And so that's the second condition for becoming a Christian is death. So we have denial, we have death, and then thirdly, we have discipleship. Notice he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Not follow me when it's convenient, not when you feel like it, not every once in a while, not for a while when you're young and then walk away from church or when you get old and finally decide to settle down, that's when you're going to follow me. No, what follow me means here, this was, this was Christ's call to Peter, to Andrew, to James, to, to John, to Philip, to Matthew, and to them it meant drop whatever you're doing and do whatever I tell you to do and go wherever I, wherever I tell you to go. That's what follow me meant to these guys. They immediately left their boats. They left their nets. They left their tax offices behind to unreservedly obey and serve Jesus Christ. 
And in a similar way, we need to leave behind our old sinful way of life and learn a new way of living by following the example that Christ set for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Christ, uh, Peter said this, Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk or live in the same manner as he walked or lived. In other words, anyone who claims to be a Christian should live like Christ. The life of every Christian should reflect Christ. That's what he commanded of his followers. When Jesus said to follow me, he he meant to obey me, imitate me, become like me, learn to live like I lived. That's what it means to be someone's disciple, to be a, a follower, a pupil, a learner. And the learning process, whereby we learn to observe and obey Christ's commands more and grow to become more like him, is what we refer to as discipleship. And Jesus was very exacting and very demanding when it came to discipleship. Let's just look down towards the end of this chapter. Actually, the last... uh, Five verses, I guess it is here, or six verses, starting in verse 57, we see how Luke grouped together three different conversations that Jesus had with three different people who said they wanted to follow him, and even though these three people seemed ready and willing enough to follow Christ, they had never seriously counted the cost of what it means to be a Christian. And so he laid some very difficult demands on these these folks to challenge their level of commitment to him. Notice verse 57, and they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Somebody's like, hey, sign me up, Jesus. And Jesus said, great. Here, here's the clipboard. Put your name down on here. Sign, Sign your name. No, what did he say? The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus demanded sacrificial commitment. Notice the next conversation, verse 59, he said to another, follow me, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Well, it seems like a reasonable request, right? But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Jesus demanded preferential commitment. He needed to be more important than anything and anyone else in our lives. Then notice the last conversation, verse 61. Another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to, to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, to us, Jesus' response to these three individuals might sound harsh. Like, ooh, uh, it's not very winsome, Jesus. Um, Well, we have to keep in mind, Jesus knew something about those people that we don't. What did he know? He knew their hearts. He knew it was in their hearts. And he was insisting when, 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 
if you're going to follow me, that means that you need to be more dedicated to me than anyone or anything else in your life. Jesus expected his followers to sacrificially and unconditionally surrender everything to him, to leave it all behind, and to never look back. And so choosing to follow Christ is a once and for all, all or nothing decision. And so that's the third condition for being a Christian is it's discipleship. So, so there you have the, the three conditions Jesus laid down for those who want to become a Christian. Death, denial, and discipleship. This is what we must be willing to do to become a Christian. Now, let's be honest, okay? All of us instinctively shrink back from this kind of surrender and sacrifice that Christ requires from those who would come after him. And I think that's exactly why Jesus followed up these three conditions with three considerations designed to convince people to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And I can't conceive of any more convincing reasons to be a Christian than these three presented by Christ himself. Notice the first consideration, we'll call it the paradox, verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. But what, is, what does it mean when Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life? In other words, those, those people who want to hold on to their lives, they, they want to keep it for themselves. They're, they're concerned about their comfort and their security, their, their prosperity. They're, they're consumed with their own personal gratification. They, they, they want to do what they want to do. They, they want to live the way they want to live. They refuse to deny themselves, is the point. And whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. They're going to miss out on the, the true purpose of life and ultimately they'll lose their soul. They'll spend eternity in hell. I think there's so many people in the world that are, that are scared that they're going to miss out on something if they give up their life to Christ. And so they clutch tightly to their life and they refuse to give it to Christ. And the sad irony is that they will end up losing the very thing that they spent their entire life trying so hard to keep. But notice the flip side here. He says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who'll save it. In other words, the, the person who freely gives up their life to Christ, instead of living for themselves, they live for Christ. Instead of doing what they want, they do what Christ wants. They die daily. They'll save it. They'll get to keep it. Not only do they get to enjoy abundant life here on earth, but they'll also get to spend eternity in heaven. And so this too is very ironic in that you end up giving, or excuse me, you end, you, you end up keeping what you gladly gave away. And this is the paradox of, of Christianity. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it 
to life eternal. So the first thing that should convince us to give our lives to Christ is you can't keep it anyway. It wasn't yours to begin with. And no matter how hard you try, you're going to end up losing in the end. And he expands on that thought in verse 25 with the second consideration. We'll call it the price. He says, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, what use is it if you get everything you ever wanted in life and then die and go to hell? I mean, what good will all of it be to you there? Matthew and Mark record that Jesus posed a follow-up question to clarify what he was getting at. He, in Matthew 16, 26, Mark 8, 37, it says, he said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And what Jesus might have been saying there was that once you're in hell, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. You're stuck there forever. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, you will still not have enough money or power to bring your soul back from hell. Or Jesus might have been simply saying that your soul is the most important, precious, expensive, valuable thing in the world. Nothing in this world will ever equal the worth of your soul because your soul is eternal. It lasts forever. And so there is no sin, no pleasure, no person. There's absolutely nothing in this entire world worth losing your soul in hell for. So the second thing that should convince us to follow Christ, to be a Christian, is it's pointless to get everything you ever wanted in life but then end up losing the most important thing and that's your soul. So we have the paradox, we have the price. There's a third consideration here, the punishment. The punishment, verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What does it mean to be ashamed of me? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. To be ashamed of Christ means we don't want anything to do with him. To be ashamed of Christ's words means that we don't want to do what he's told us to do, that we must be willing to do in order to be one of his disciples. In other words, we refuse to follow and obey him. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going I'm to treat you the same way you treat me. Matthew 10, verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And so if we refuse to acknowledge that we know Christ, he'll refuse to acknowledge that he knows us. When? When he returns in all of his glory, accompanied by his mighty angels, to punish, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And at that moment, 
those who were ashamed to take Christ as their Lord and Savior, along with those who called him Lord but never submitted to him and obeyed him as Lord, will hear him say the most frightening words imaginable, depart from me. I never knew you. You're like, Lord, 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 depart from me, I never knew you. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So the final consideration that should convince us to to follow Christ, to be, a, to be a Christian, is that Christ is coming back someday to judge all of us based on whether we acknowledged him or we were ashamed of him. I want to point something out, too, by the way, about the word used to introduce all three of these considerations. It's the same word. Verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life. Verse 25, for what is a man profited? Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me. The word for indicates the, the reason for or the result of something. So actually, these are not just the, the serious considerations for following Christ. These are the awful consequences if you walk away from Christ because you're unwilling to meet the conditions that he's laid out to be his follower. You'll lose your life. You'll lose your soul. You'll lose face. This is what will happen to you if you reject Christ. In other words, the decision the disciples and the multitudes had to make whether or not to deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow him, was a matter of life and death. Don't miss this. Eternity hung in the balance here. Heaven and hell were at stake. To me, this is the greatest proof that this is not a call to deeper commitment, but a call to salvation. Heaven is not just for super committed Christians. This is not the varsity that gets to go there. They don't lose their soul in hell because they haven't stepped up to this higher level of commitment. And that's why I believe that Jesus was laying down here the the entry-level requirements for being a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. This is basic Christianity 101. Now let me be clear. Because I know some of you have been uncomfortable so far in hearing this message. And so let me just say this. There is absolutely nothing we can do in and of ourselves to become a Christian. So we can all take a big sigh of relief right now. Does that feel good? You needed to hear that, didn't you? And so to make sure that no one walks away from this passage adopting what's called a works-based salvation, that is thinking there is something you can or must do to earn your salvation, let's not forget that Jesus reminded his followers that salvation is a sovereign gift of God based on his grace, not on their works. Turn over to Luke 18 quickly. 
Luke 18. This is that classic story of the rich young ruler. It says in verse 18, this is Luke 18, 18, a, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mark says that this ruler was young, he was wealthy, and, uh, and he actually came running up to Jesus and fell at his feet and asked this question. I mean, this guy was desperate. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit, to inherit eternal life? In other words, what, must, what, what do I have to do to get to heaven when I die? Have you ever had somebody just come right out and ask you, hey, what, I'm just, what do I have to do to get to heaven when I die? I mean, that's just like the beach ball, right? Like, I can hit that. I, even I can hit that one, right? And so notice Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And so this guy was probably a very upstanding individual. People looked up to him because he had this moral exterior. He was a, a, um, just a, a good, upstanding guy. And on top of all that, he was wealthy. And in those days, if you were wealthy, that means that God's blessing was on you. And so everybody assumed this guy was good to go. He was right with God. And guess what? This guy believed that too. Yeah, I've, I've done all of the, those things. So Jesus looked past all that moral exterior and he said to him, verse 22, one thing you still lack. One thing, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, what? Follow me. Now was Jesus teaching the way to get to heaven is to be charitable and benevolent and, you know, give away all your money and is that what he was saying? No, this just happened to be the one thing that stood in the way of this guy and God. It was his money. It was his stuff that he loved, he treasured, he valued more than Christ. And so he says, I want you to get rid of that stuff. And I want to become your ultimate treasure. Well, notice verse 23, but when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Mark actually says he turned around and walked away sad. What a contrast. Here this guy came up with all this enthusiasm, crying out to Jesus, what do I have to do to get to heaven when I die? And Jesus gives him the answer, and he was unwilling to pay the price. He was unwilling to give up everything for Christ. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him as he walked away and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus wanted his disciples to realize that it was not just hard for a rich person um, to, to go to heaven. It was impossible. As impossible as, as, as trying to force a camel through the eye of a needle. You ever tried to, you know, get that little thread through the eye of the needle? I mean, that's even difficult. Can you imagine a camel? Well, the point is it's not even possible. It's impossible. Verse 26, they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So Jesus was asserting salvation by human effort is impossible. It is holy by God's sovereign grace. We're totally incapable of saving ourselves. Salvation is all of God's work. We are totally dependent on him to save us. There is no hope of being saved apart from a a miraculous work of God's grace. And we need to understand that the things that Christ called people to do here in Luke 9, verse 23, they're not just hard. They're impossible. But God, through his grace, makes it possible for us to do the things that Christ required for becoming a Christian. He makes us willing and able to meet these three conditions, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and to follow Christ. He has to, since none of these things come naturally to any of us. And then you just got to love Peter. As always, Peter's hanging on every word that Jesus is saying, and he, he acts as the spokesman for the rest of the disciples, and he was quick to remind Jesus what all of them had given up to follow him. Notice verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. We did what you told this rich young ruler to do. What about us? Are we going to inherit eternal life? Are we going to be saved? Are we going to go to heaven when we die? And I love Jesus' response, verse 29. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, what? Eternal life. Where did this story begin? What shall I do, right, with this rich young ruler's question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is telling his disciples, guess what? You got it. You're going you're gonna to have it. He not only assured them that they would have eternal life, that they would inherit eternal life, but he also promised them that whoever gave up everything would be repaid many times over in this lifetime. Beloved, listen, it is true that Christ demands great sacrifice. But he also rewards great sacrifice. Walter Chantry, in his book, The Shadow of the Cross, says this, Not one man has ever sacrificed for his Lord without being richly repaid. He said, If the cross is only contrasted with earthly pleasures lost, it may seem hard and, and threatening. But when the cross is weighed in the balances with the glorious treasures to be had through it, even the cross seems sweet.
The great hymn writer Isaac Watts understood something about that sweetness of the cross or the wondrous nature of the cross and how it should compel us to give up everything we have to follow and obey the one who died upon it. Earlier, earlier we sang a modern rendition of Isaac Watts' classic hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's called just simply The Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were, an ama- that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You sang that. I sang that. About 35, 40 minutes ago. Did you mean it? Did I mean it? And then I love the chorus. This is the modern edition here. Oh, the wonderful cross. The wonderful cross? That seems like an oxymoron, right? What's wonderful about a cross? About crucifixion? He says, oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. If you're familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that that line there bids me come and die, is taken straight out of the class, his class of the book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And the songwriter uses that expression when Christ calls him and he bids him come and die in order to communicate the, the compelling nature of the cross. And rather than seeing the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as some awful thing, the fact that he was, that, that he was willing to come and die for sinners like you, for sinners like me, is so wonderful that it should compel us to be willing to come to him and die to ourselves and everything else in our lives that we hold dear. And when we do, we experience what it means to truly live and realize what life is truly all about. Life is about living for Christ. And when we live for Christ, we can say with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And I know this has been a harder message than most challenges, for all, very challenging for all of us to take in and to process and to consider where we are in, uh, in this text and what we need to do as a result of this text. And so I'm, I'm confident that your spirit will take uh, his sword and will accomplish his purposes in all of our lives today. Lord, I pray that we would serve one another well, even as we discuss this message um, in this afternoon and, and maybe this evening or this week, or as we meditate on it, Lord, that, that you're, you would accomplish your work uh, through your word in the lives of those of us who believe and even those perhaps that don't believe that, Lord, this would be the message that you use uh, to 
bring them to a place where they are truly committed to Christ and that they become a true Christian, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.